Boy, three of the biggest trending words in religious news, spiritual news, Christian news today are deconstruction, exvangelical, and deconversion. I don't know how familiar you might be with these words. I'm going to just walk you through them, uh, each of them briefly. But deconstruction, what is that? Well, that's the questioning of one's childhood faith, the things that we were taught, the things that we inherited from our families, from our churches, from spiritual influences on us. And people who are going through a process of deconstruction are raising questions or saying, I don't want to just necessarily believe everything I've been taught. I want to evaluate it. I want to tear it down to its skeleton and ask, should I continue to believe these things? Should I believe different things? And as you can imagine, there's a process, in, in that process, there's opportunity for reconstruction, which could be great to question things that, that are foreign to Scripture or things that are practices that are unbiblical. And there could be a great opportunity with that to reclaim uh, truths that have been passed on, but with new ownership and with new conviction. But often, things are going the other direction, and people are finding reasons not to believe and to to expel things that they were given. And then that can lead to becoming an ex-evangelical. These are former evangelicals who have left the church discouraged saddened, wounded. Uh, They have oftentimes politically moved leftward and theologically moved leftward. They've become skeptics. They've become untrusting of religious authority. They're trying to hold on often to some kind of belief, something about Jesus, something about the Bible, something about God perhaps that they still find value in, but they're not going back to their church. They're not going back to their evangelical church. Uh, some have even rejected the, just the, the meaning of the term evangelical. And when we think of that word, uh, because we are a church in the evangelical stream, we see beauty in that term, at least historically we do. Uh, this has been the, the claim of the church throughout the ages to have evangelical convictions of the authority and the reliability of Scripture, the message of the good news, the euangelion, the good news of Christ, that he has come to save and that he has performed the reconciliating work to reconcile us to God and that that's a message worth spreading, worth sharing the good news. Those are the things that are captured in the idea of evangelicalism, but some fear that it has been hijacked increasingly in recent years, particularly for right-wing political usage. And there are increasing uh, numbers of people who are saying, I don't buy the politics or the co-opting of the politics, and I'm uncomfortable with that term, and I don't want to be in those circles anymore. And that often leads to deconversion, the full leaving of the Christian faith, often where people are becoming outspoken atheists. Uh, They're becoming mockers, even evangelists in the sense of trying to evangelize believers out of the church to follow their path to a place of free thinking, though they tend to free think all in lockstep, I'm noticing. But all of these are forms on a spectrum of the biblical term apostasy. Apostasy. Um, Like you, I have friends who have left the faith. I have friends from my high school youth group 
who no longer claim Christianity. I have friends from college. I have colleagues in ministry. I have family members. I have pastors that I know of, and I have musicians and former worship leaders that I know of who have left the faith. This hits home really personally. My very own youth pastor is no longer following Christ, hasn't been for 30 years. He had a huge impact on me. I'd be hard pressed to think of anybody who had a greater impact on my early formative spirituality other than my dad, than my youth pastor. He was such an effective Bible teacher, I wanted to be able to teach like him. He was a great guitar player, musician, songwriter, singer. In many ways, it was his modeling that led me into worship ministry. I wanted to be able to write songs that were impacting like he did. I wanted to lead people to the throne of grace through singing like he did. He taught me how to share my faith, and the way that he taught me to share my faith led many people to Christ. Um, But he had doubts. He had questions that he couldn't answer. He was in a relationship, he had a fiance, and together they were, they were anti-war. They, they struggled with the, the, the war machine and wondered why the church tended to support such things. And she broke up with him. She broke off the engagement along the way, and within a year she married a Marine, and he was thrown for such a loop. It's like, what do I even do with this? And then his father, who had been a pastor, one of the most godly people I've ever known or seen in my, my young life, he got brain cancer and very quickly died. And the family had prayed for him. And Where was God's power? Why didn't God answer this prayer? Why would, of all the people, all the bad people who live, why did God allow this person to die? And he couldn't answer that question. And he went east to move left. He went to the east coast to go to a seminary that was more liberal and thought maybe uh, I can find uh, you know, pursuit of justice and peace issues and racism issues and poverty issues in a different structure and I can find people who like to lean left with me. Well, he leaned so far left that he fell over, he fell down, and he completely gave up his faith. I saw him a couple years later, and he had uh, grown out his hair. He was taking on kind of a Rastafarian garb, and we were at a reception. We're going through a line, and he looks at me sternly, and all the love and the joy that I used to know in him was gone. It had evaporated. He said, don't even try to convert me. And I said something of appeasing, and I don't know what it was, but he, he motioned at, at a bowl that was on a table. He said, my, when you knew me, my worldview was that big. And his point was, he's grown beyond that now. And he was really the first deconvert that rocked my world, and I didn't know what to do with that. Um, it seems like we're living in an age of apostasy, how do we live as people who maintain our own faith and help our children, our friends, and others in our church maintain their faith? Uh, John Marriott, two weeks ago, began uh, this passage in John uh, chapter 13. Well, he's a, a research expert in this arena, 
and he's the author of at least two books on deconversion. And I have just finished reading his first book, uh, A Recipe for Disaster. I had it somewhere here, but it got moved, I guess. Um, but you can, you can look it up. It's definitely worth reading. He's researching, he's interviewed those who've left the faith. Can you imagine participating in those interviews? Tell me why you no longer follow Jesus. And he listened, and he documented, and he found themes. Um, in his book, he describes a, a recipe analogy where there's, there's three arenas of, of how this recipe is, um, you know, is born out. So there, there's the ingredients, and then there's, the, co- and there's the, the preparation, and then there's the cooking. And the ingredients are, are the personality of the person the psychological thing, makeup of, of the person. Um, the third is, is the, the cooking, the simmering in, in our secular and post-Christian society. We have very little impact in those first and third areas. But the second area, the preparation, this is the calling of the church in discipleship preparation. This is the opportunity for parents in our families to prepare the faith of our children. This is where we have much influence. It's looking at how we're doing and recognizing that poor preparation can actually assist in people's progression out of the church and can contribute to setting people up for deconversion. he mentions multiple chapters, uh, multiple factors in the book. I'm gonna focus on two that are most common to my experience and actually show up quite clearly in the passage of scripture in John chapter 13. This is the, this is the intellectual category where questions are bigger than answers. We've got collegiate level questions and we've got grade school level answers in some cases. Um, scientism plays a role here where scientism denies supernatural pursuits and they conclude that there is no evidence. There's not evidence that, that they will allow into the arena of discussion in their naturalistic worldview that rules out the supernatural at the front door. Um, the second category is experiential where people see hypocrisy People experience hurt, perhaps from abusive leadership. Uh, They have been wounded, and the church, they feel, doesn't deliver what was promised to them. Uh, Today in John chapter 13, and I want to encourage you to to open up your Bibles there, we're going to see Jesus predict two examples of apostasy, which are among his own disciples. And get this, Jesus didn't do anything wrong, right? He was the perfect discipleship director. This was the optimal church environment for the disciples. And yet two still struggled with apostasy that we're gonna see today. And Jesus offers two lines of evidence for reality of God, one intellectual, one experiential. And we're gonna see God highlight the most significant and powerful means that is available for us to reveal the power of God, the reality of God in our midst, and our identity as his people. Uh, I want to speak especially today to any of you who are having doubts, any of you who are feeling like, I've got questions that trouble me that I can't sleep at night, and I don't know where to go for answers. Perhaps you even see yourself somewhere on that spectrum of considering 
leaving evangelicalism or deconstructing or even leaving the church altogether. Um, I want to be particularly aware of you today, particularly sensitive to you today, and let you know that there is hope, there are answers, and we want to be here for you and walk that journey with you. You don't need to find those answers outside of the church. Come to us. Let us help you with it. Let us help walk with you through these things. Um, John chapter 13, starting in verse 21. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So after three, uh, so Jesus, we find him here, he's in anguish. Uh, this is the most, uh, most difficult news that he's going to express, that after three years, there's a mole in their midst. There's a traitor that's gone rogue here, and he's aware of it. So verse 22, notice each, each person is looking around. The disciples, they, they looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They're, they're looking around in disbelief. It's not me, is it? Is it you? It can't be you. Who is it? They have no idea who it could be. Um, verse, uh, verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter, verse 24, he's, he's the always impulsive one, right? Simon Peter motioned to him. It's like, yo, 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 John, ask, ask him, ask him. Uh, who is it motioning to ask Jesus who he was speaking to? Verse 25, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus answers and he says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread after I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas and Jesus said to him, what are you going, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Um, and it says no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. I'm gonna come back to that in a moment, but a couple things that are going on here. First, John for the only time in his gospel, he uses the proper name, the formal name Satan to describe the enemy of our souls. This is a big moment. He's saved a unique identifier for this very moment right here. Um, see that the devil had previously implanted betrayal into Judas' heart. Verse two tells us that. So there's this ongoing progression of the devil planting an idea Judas mulling it over, making plans, eventually embracing it, and giving his heart over to Satan. And then he tips off these hired mercenaries to Jesus uh, that are gonna identify Jesus in the garden and they're going to arrest him and try him and that story we're familiar with. But Jesus, Judas, here, Judas here had aligned himself with Jesus' chief spiritual enemy, Satan, and his chief physical human enemies, the chief priests and the religious leaders here. 
But notice all of this was secretive. All of this was unseen, unnoticed by the other disciples. Nobody in the room suspected Jesus. What's really amazing here is Jesus has given a clue. Jesus has said, it's gonna be the one to whom I dip my morsel of bread and hand it to him. And even when Jesus does that, the disciples don't get it. Judas is so far off their radar, he's so out of their consideration that when Jesus points out who it is, they don't even see it. Their eyes betray them. Um, No one knew why Jesus said what Jesus said. So they do what people do. They fill in the blanks with their own ideas, and they begin to wonder, well, maybe uh, because he's a treasurer, maybe he's got to go buy stuff for the feast tomorrow, or maybe Jesus told him to give money to the poor, but they really don't have a reason for it. Um, See, Judas, he was entrusted with the money. He was basically functioning as a deacon for the disciples there. He was a leader. In this seating arrangement, Uh, Perhaps you've seen Leonardo da Vinci's beautiful painting of the Last Supper. Can you picture that in your mind? Okay, now erase it, okay? Because it's not helpful. for Beautiful painting, but not helpful historically for what happened. Uh, We have a picture there of the Roman triclinium. This is actually more of what it's like. And if you can see there, there's three tables. It's, it's like an upside down U. There's the head table up on the top and then there's the two longer tables on the side. And the head table would have the host and the two guests of honor. And so we know that John has identified himself as the beloved disciple, uh, the disciple who Jesus loves, and that's his word for modesty, uh, as he's not identifying himself by his name because it's not about his name, it's about Jesus' name. That's kind of another topic. But, but, but he, he's identified here, sitting to the right of Jesus. And so as he's reclining at these low Roman tables, they recline on their left elbow, they eat with their right hand, no utensils, uh, he is able to lean back into the chest of Jesus and ask him the question, well, who else is in the place of honor? To Jesus left. Well, I would assume it would probably be Peter, except Peter is ruled out in the story because he's the one motioning from a distance. It's not Peter. It seems to actually be Judas, because Jesus is handing out the morsel to him at arm's length, and he's speaking to him in a way that doesn't gather the attention of everybody else. So catch this, I want you to see Jesus' love for Judas. Jesus knows Judas has been filled with Satan, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, and yet Jesus, as John mentioned two weeks ago, he washed Judas' feet. He sat him in the place of honor. He had chosen Judas for this very moment. He sat near him. He loved him. He gave him the dignity of not exposing him. He could have put an end to it right there if he'd have said, Judas, I know your heart and I am calling you out. Peter would have come over there with his sword and taken off his head right at that moment, right? Jesus didn't expose him. Jesus loved Judas all the way to the end. Verse 30, um, after receiving bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. 
After dinner, it was night. Kind of like before breakfast, it was morning. Why is he saying that? This is actually a, a huge literary point that's being made here. Remember how John introduced Jesus in chapter one? He is the light of God. He's the light of God who's come into the world. A few chapters ago in chapter 11, Jesus said, if anyone walks around at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And Judas is being identified as someone in whom the light isn't, isn't in. He didn't have the light of God. So this contrast is being announced here. Judas has moved away from the light of God to pursue the darkness of night. This progression of darkness has begun of the betrayal, of the arrest, of the trials, of the beatings, of the death. The light of the healings of the teachings is about, uh, teachings is about to be extinguished and night is about, spiritual night is about to take over and to dominate. Uh, look at verses 31 and 32 because this is unexpected. He's just announced darkness, that night is going to dominate, and the next verse is about Jesus being glorified, God being glorified, as if everything is happy again. It's like, what? what, what, what? Do you ever read something and just go, what? What just happened? I'm missing a connection here. Are we missing a paragraph between these two verses? Well, we're not. We're not, but look at these. It says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in him in himself and glorify him at once. There's a whole lot of glory going on here. What's going on? Well, often reading background uh, from the Old Testament. Old Testament background can be helpful, and it can be really helpful to have wonderful uh, commentaries and scholars, guys like Don Carson, to help us uh, understand things. Some of you might be aware there's a category in Isaiah called the servant songs, and they are of prophetic, um, they're, they're of prophecies. And in, in Isaiah chapter 49, there's one of, the spir- one of the servant songs, and the nation of Israel is presented as the people through whom God's glorious splendor is going to be revealed. Uh, Verse three of Isaiah 49 says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor, in whom I will display my glory. Now Jesus is presented in the New Testament as the perfect Israelite. He's presented as the manifestation of the true Israel. He's the true representative of Israel. He's the fulfillment of promise. And so in this announcement here, (coughs) um, the the glory of God that's promised for Israel is actually displayed on Jesus here. When? He says, now. Now, in the midst of the dark of night, God's glory is going to encapsulate this impending darkness. This betrayal, this arrest, these trials, the punishment, the death, all of that is going to be revealing God's glory and the following renewal of light will as well. His his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, his exaltation to the right hand of God. Both the darkness and the light, 
both the horror and the awesome. This is a big deal for us practically. Because when do we tend to think that the glory of God is being revealed in our lives? Isn't it when things are going well? Isn't it when God is answering prayer? When we're experiencing blessing, we think, oh, now it's easy to glorify God. Now I'm experiencing the glory of God in my life because everything is going well. One thing this passage is teaching is that God's glory can be revealed in all of it. In your darkest night, in your deepest trauma, God's glory can be revealed there. And it can also be revealed in the resurrection and the reversal of those things in the newness of life, in the newness of light. God's glory is revealed in all of it. Um, Jesus is going to then prophesy that he's going to die. And in typical Jesus form, he does so in riddles. Uh, Look at verse 33. He says, um, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Peter is going to step in, jump to verse 36 here, and he's going to ask the question everyone wants answered. He's that, that, that friend you love to have in the classroom because everyone's too afraid to ask the question, and he's not, and he just boldly asks it. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I want follow you now? Wah, wah, I want to go now. He's so impatient. He's so impetuous. Uh, I want to follow you now. And then he gives this phrase that uh, Mickey Clink calls Peter's bold naivety. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? Because Jesus knows what he's actually going to do. Um, And so Jesus calls it out. He says, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter's actually going to do the opposite of lay down his life for Jesus. There will be no martyrdom on this day. He is going to cut and run. Jesus predicts the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter has this profound lack of self-awareness, like I do, like you may. Um, We sometimes imagine ourselves to be much stronger, much more faithful than we really are, much more valiant, much more bold. Um, We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, even when we won't give it to others. We'll give it to ourselves. But the reality is most of us have legendary blind spots regarding our weaknesses, regarding our frailties, and our best bravado moments usually aren't followed up with bravado practice. Um, In thinking about deconversion, this is where the seeds are started. We try to have a boldness sometimes that we can't carry it out because we're doing it in the flesh. 
or we have heard things about God that we want to be true, we imagine them to be true, but sometimes they're built up in ways bigger than God designs to deliver. Every day with Jesus will not necessarily be sweeter than the day before. That song teaches something that's actually not true. Um, God will not answer every prayer that you pray in the way that you hope that he's going to answer it. If someone has offered that to you, they're not being biblical. Sometimes God will answer our deepest, most severe prayers in ways that we desire. And often God has other purposes in mind. And so we learn to pray, God, your will be done, not my will. And Lord, I will rest in your will. Uh, but in thinking about deconversion or thinking about this, this term apostasy, there's a few things that we can notice from this text. One thing is it can progress in stages. The devil can, can prompt someone with an idea that grows over time and a person begins to consider it, a person begins to entertain it, and increasingly they believe it and then they give themselves over to it and then it's all over for them. It can involve satanic influence, demonic involvement, even demonic oppression or demonic possession. Remember, we were at war against principalities, not against people, against principalities. And this can happen to people who give way to the darkness of night. Uh, it can be permanent, like with Judas. It can be temporary, like with Peter. And we can't always know. It can be impossible sometimes to distinguish between who has true faith during a particular season. For three years, Judas' faith was indistinguishable from the other disciples. No one knew, even at this Last Supper, that he had gone rogue. Um, so we can be surprised. No one, fully ex no, one, no one expected that Judas would fully reject Christ. No one would have expected that Peter would partly, temporarily deny Christ. For a brief time, for about 24 hours, both Judas and Peter looked like apostates. Sometimes we don't know that someone's actually gonna come back to Christ, that their story isn't finished yet, but in the moment, it might have looked indistinguishable. When someone falls away, it is not necessarily the end of their spiritual story. They may still recover, they may still be restored, so our posture to them must still be to love them, to embrace them, to not write them off, to look for opportunities for restoration, because God may yet restore them. I mentioned earlier that one of the claims of the new atheists or those who are deconverted, they will say there is no evidence for God and this is that intellectual objection. So we're told by them repeatedly that truth only comes from the scientific method. There has to be investigative inquiry. It has to be observable and testable and repeatable. The problem is that Jesus said the kingdom of God comes without observation. And Jesus taught that faith comes from hearing the gospel and that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, 
Unique miracles, by definition, are not testable, are not repeatable. Um, They lie outside the realm of what science is able to test. So physical realities are testable physically, but spiritual realities are not. Spiritual realities are discerned, and they're discerned spiritually. We live in three dimensions physically, but spiritual reality is a fourth dimension. It's immeasurable, indiscernible by our three normal dimensions. God is said to exist outside of time and space, and yet he's entered into time and space to reveal himself to us, to those who have spiritual apprehension. God is so kind, he's created us as thinking beings, but he's called us to live by faith, so he's given us a reasonable faith. He's given us a rational faith, and Jesus is going to provide evidence For those who are willing to receive it, he's got a category of evidence that's here in this passage, and we're gonna see it in a moment. Uh, It's predictive prophecy. That's the line of evidence that Jesus points to for intellectual evidence. Uh, God sees all of time as present to him. Think of an eternal timeline from the beginning to the end. God sees all of it in his ever-present now. So it's no big deal for God to have a moment in time where he inspires somebody to say something that's going to happen later whether it's a thousand years later or a day later. We're gonna see both are true in this, uh, in this passage here. So Jesus makes prophetic predictions that are going to soon be fulfilled and he's actually using a fulfillment of prophecy to set up the first one. So go back to verses 15 to 17 and we're gonna look here at what Jesus has just done in giving evidence uh, for his reality. Uh, Verses 15 to 17, just kind of setting the stage here. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. This is following his washing of their feet. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a servant greater than the ones who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Um, And that sets up verse 18 where he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, this is gonna be a little bit difficult terrain in the next couple minutes, but hang with me, because I think this is worth it. I think there's a payoff that's gonna be beneficial here. Um, Jesus is saying that his commission to them, his disciples, is for them to live what Jesus has just modeled. He has just washed their feet, he's just demonstrated love to them. He's saying, live that way. Live demonstrating service, ministry service toward others. And I'm calling all of you to that, well, almost all of you, all of you except one. But I have chosen you all. And we've got this little bit of a conundrum here. Now. For the skeptic, they want to hone in on this word chosen because this can often be the same word election and we think immediately of election to salvation. And they'll look at a prior verse um, in John chapter six, verse 70, where Jesus is said to have chosen all 12 disciples. 
And so which is it? Is Jesus chosen, I'm sorry, is Judas chosen and then not chosen? Is Jesus saved and then not saved? Did Judas lose his salvation, we might ask? Was he saved? So once saved, always saved, so he's always saved. Or he's not saved now, so he never was saved. And we get this theological conundrum, right? There's a way out of this that doesn't require that Christians disagree with one another and it doesn't require that, uh, that skeptics have found a contradiction. It's a deeper understanding, a better understanding of interpreting scripture and having a little Greek background helps a little bit, but the word that's translated chosen that is often translated election uh, my preferred word for that is selection. It's actually a very versatile word. Sometimes it's used in a salvation context, but it's a much broader word, and it has many other contexts and many other usages. Many times people are elected or selected or chosen for a particular path, uh, particular task, or for a particular purpose. And so Jesus is saying he has selected, he has chosen these 12 disciples for a purpose, they are to, to walk with him for three years. They are to be tutored by him. They are to be discipled by him. 11 of them happen to be saved. One of them happens to be a renegade, what Jesus calls a devil earlier in John, prophetically of this passage. 12 are chosen, 11 are saved. It's a different usage of the word chosen and our difficulty there um, goes away. But notice this is not an accident. It's actually in God's divine plan that he's chosen 12 of whom one will be a rogue, one who will be an apostate. Um, You see that at the end of verse 18. He's saying, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. This is part of God's plan. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What's God saying there? The quotes tell, what's Jesus saying there? The quotes tell us that he's quoting from something. We looked that up. It's Psalm, one, it's Psalm 41, verse nine, that says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It sounds identical to what Jesus is experiencing here in John 13 with Judas. But you know who said that, who wrote that? It was David a thousand years earlier. King David becomes a prototype or a type of the coming Messiah. Um, Many things that were experienced by David later become experienced by Jesus, and these two are connected as the two great kings of Israel, the great king of physical Israel, the great king, true king of spiritual Israel. Um, David previously experienced this betrayal personally, and then that experience becomes a prophecy that is now fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus alerts the disciples that this very phrase is coming true today and is being fulfilled in him now. And he uses that to set up the next three prophecies. And so the first line of evidence for faith in Jesus is intellectual. It's this category of predictive prophecy, and the three prophecies are, one, that Judas will betray Jesus, two, that Peter will deny Jesus, and three, 
that Jesus himself will die. And what we find out is that all three of these predictive prophecies are fulfilled within the next 24 hours. Look at what Jesus says about these, specifically about Judas in verse 19. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it takes place, you may believe that I am. So Jesus is giving us a primary motivation for why God uses predictive prophecy. It's specifically to bring about belief in Jesus. Why is there prophecy? So that people will believe. When people see something was said here and then it's fulfilled here, a thousand years later, wow, that could only be God. When Jesus predicts three things that are gonna happen and the next 24 hours, all three happen exactly as he said, wow, Jesus must be of God. There's intellectual integrity in believing. There's a rationality for faith there. Um, And we have this additional ego me claim by Jesus, uh, this I am statement. We've preached on that before and it's come up several other times in John already, but it's, it's so that we, so that you may believe that, translation says I am he, Jesus is literally saying that I am. The divine name Yahweh, we say third person, he is, but when God speaks of himself, Ehya, I am. And that's what Jesus is saying there. When these prophecies are fulfilled, when Judas betrays me, then you will know, Ehya, I am, Greek, ego eimi. Um, I am the son of God. I'm one with Yahweh. The second line of evidence for faith in Jesus is experiential People who leave the faith today, they so often talk about the church not being like Jesus that they expected, that they were told about. They talk rather about being under authoritarian leadership, abusive leadership in some cases, abusing finances, abusing power, abusing people, sometimes physical abuse, sometimes spiritual abuse, sometimes Uh, sexual abuse, they've seen abuses of power. They wonder where the grace went, they wonder where the compassion went, where the acceptance went, where the integrity went, where the humility has gone. At a recent denominational convention, a young woman posted a photo on Facebook, showed a picture of a room in a convention hall and her caption was, right now in room, and she listed the room number, is my pastor who covered up my sexual assault and my abortion. When people experience abuse like that at the hands of their spiritual leaders, how can they humanly avoid questioning if it's true? can they continue to follow what they've been taught by that kind of leader? Verse 34 and 35, turn there in your Bibles. This is where it all comes together. This is the capstone of this passage. 
These are familiar words which run a risk for us to miss their power. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This comes in the context of Jesus having just announced that he's going to be gone and the question would come, what are we going to do? How will we live? What will we do without you? Jesus' answer to that, love. When you're gone, how are we supposed to spend our day? Love people. But what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to accomplish? Love people. Just as I have loved you, love others. What you have experienced from me, let others experience that through you. I have given you an example for three years in the compassion, in the empathy, in the listening, in the guidance, in the provision, in the meeting of your needs. Three years you never went without, without anything you needed. In the forgiveness, in the reconciliation, in the acceptance. You were stupid fishermen. Have you forgotten? I loved you. I reached out to you. I treated you as brothers. I treated you as sons. I brought you into my family. You have experienced love. Do that. Do those things so that others will know that you belong to me, so that you will have legitimacy when you say that you represent me. Lead with love. Show love. So love becomes this new identification marker for God's people in the church. We, we could wonder, you know, how's this supposed to be new? What's new about this? The command of love has always been there. It's in the Old Testament. It's new, it's at a new level. They have seen it with new eyes. They've, they've experienced it at its highest level through Jesus. He's demonstrated it again and again. So this becomes this new marker of identification. Old Testament Israel was known as the holy people of God. They were taught to be distinctive. They were known for how they are different. They're known for not doing the things that the other nations did. They had unique practices and unique prohibitions. But now there's this this clear calling for Christians. We aren't primarily to be known for the things that we're against. We aren't to be known for the things that we oppose. Our loudest voice or the picture people get from us shouldn't be about what we don't participate in. Yes, we will still have convictions, but our holiness, literally our distinctiveness, our uniqueness is about being a demonstration of love, a pervasive love. Literally, the love of God to us that changes us, becomes the love of God in us, that then we express the love of God to others. Um, First to one another in the body and secondly to outsiders. And So Jesus is saying the best relational or experiential evidence that we can provide to the world to show them that Jesus exists and that we belong to him. The greatest way to do that is that we love each other and that we demonstrate that love in tangible, visible ways. Don't get me wrong, conviction is important. Love is more important. 
Doctrine is critical. Love is more critical. It's crucial that we serve people, that we serve others, that we pursue justice, that we lead in worship, that we teach. These are all necessary. Uh, These are crucial pursuits. Loving one another is more crucial. It's the primary pursuit. It is the demonstration that reveals that we belong to God. It's love. Jesus came to demonstrate love and we're to follow in his steps. There's a famous uh, testimonial quote from Tertullian, one of the church fathers writing about 100 years after the Apostle John, and he's describing the, uh, I, I'm, uh, the, the pagan opponents were so struck by love within the fellowship of Christians that amid severe persecution, they said of Christians, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. That's the demonstration that changes the world, that turns the world's attention back to the Christian church to say, how can we get more of that? Um, Tertullian goes on in writing, he's saying, one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are in common among us except our wives. I love that. Um, So how should outsiders know that we are representing God and that God exists and that he has revealed himself through Christ Jesus. Well, it's by our transformed hearts, it's by our relational love for one another. It's the chief command to us. It's the thing that should most define us. It's the first thing that outsiders should see and say about us. If outsiders are looking at us and saying anything different, something is defective in our love. It should be the most paramount attribute of who we are, what we demonstrate, what people see. So how's our love? Is this what I'm most known for? Folks, this is convicting. I'm asking this question of myself. Am I most known for love? I don't think so. I know people who are. Are we most known for love? That's the calling. That's the calling in John chapter 13. Big point for today, in an age of apostasy, it's demonstrating love that reveals that God is truly among us. Um, I wanna speak to those once more specifically in the room who might be struggling with your faith. You might be on the road to apostasy. And again, I wanna say, I wanna offer hope, but I wanna offer some empathy too. Christian churches, Christian schools, um, Christian music, Christian families, um, we haven't always modeled Jesus accurately. We haven't always led with love. We haven't always displayed the power of his spirit. We have failed. We have fallen short. And people have been hurt. And if you're one of them, I want to offer you hope. We do not perfectly represent Christ, but Christ is the perfect one. And so we don't point you to ourselves. We point you to him, but we will walk to him with you. 
And I want to say that there are answers. If you've got intellectual questions you don't know how to answer, there are answers. There are scholars. There are commentaries. There are resources in this church. We will sit with you. We will pursue these with you. We'll go to coffee with you. You have questions. We'll help you find answers. We will. Come to us. Ask us. Let us in. Um, Let me warn you. The internet, not the greatest place to find your answers. You can find a cesspool, a long line of people who have left their faith. You say, oh, I want to follow the truth wherever it leads. Well, be careful who you listen to because they will lead you astray. They will lead you into lies. They will lead you into misinterpretations of Scripture and claim that's what Scripture teaches. So, boy, pay attention to who you follow. Um, But mainly, the place to be affirmed of God's reality is through God's people as you experience the love of God through them, through us. So how do we love? How do we love people to stay in faith when we listen, when we forgive, when we serve, when we are compassionate, when we, are meet, their, when we meet their needs, uh, when we pray for them, when we encourage them, when we accept people wherever they are in their process, even when things they do and things they say are not things we would do or things we would say. But we love them. We love them to Jesus. I have seen Jesus' love in so many of you. It has impacted me so deeply and confirmed to me that God is among us. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for John 13. We thank you for you're superintending over all things, including prophecy. And God, we pray that by your spirit, you might empower us to be better lovers of one another. And God, that you would put a protection hedge around our body, that this would not be a church that people are leaving by choosing apostasy, but that this is a place where people are being loved into the kingdom and grown and having their answers uh, to their questions and experiencing the genuine love of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.